So tonight, I just wanted to offer some thoughts. Could you turn it down just a little bit? Okay. (laughs) Okay, how is that? Not so, really reverberating for me before. Okay. So can you hear me all right? Yes. Hi. Hi, everybody. (laughs) Um, I want to just offer some reflections on aspiration and courage. So just uh, about this time in the retreat, anyway, the last few weeks, (laughs) no special time, I'm really struck by how much everybody goes through, you know, how difficult it is sometimes, you know, and and despite uh, all the instructions and all the lists and everything we talk about and the upliftingness and there's times for everyone where there's lots of insight and it's really going well, then it seems to cycle around again, right? Till you're just kind of spinning in your neuroses, it feels like. I don't know if you ever feel like that. Just kind of wallowing around. You go, God, here we are again, you know? And it's into the fourth week. What did I do wrong? And that's just a lighter side. But seriously, what, what everyone goes through at different times in your own way, it's quite challenging sometimes, isn't it? Difficult, tiring, and it takes, I think, my opinion, enormous courage to keep showing up again and again, not just today, not just in this retreat, but for our whole path of awakening, for our whole life. And so what I want to talk about a bit tonight in terms of just trying to, something that can support or keep showing up, having this moment-to-moment courage, something that helps me a lot, is to uh, keep refreshing, renewing my uh, deepest sense of aspiration for why I'm doing what I'm doing in terms of this whole path of awakening. That's kind of what I want to talk about. So when we are in the difficult time. Even if yesterday it was all flowing and it was so clear that there's no self or everything's coming and going or there's no point in putting in effort. It's just all happening by itself. And when it feels like that, it feels like, well, now I know. This is how it is and it's going to be like this for the rest of the retreat and probably the rest of my life. And it probably isn't the first time you've had that experience and that thought, right? And if you're lucky, it's the next day before that falls apart. Could be five minutes later. And it's like, oh my God, again, this. And then sometimes we can see in whatever particular um, personal suffering is coming up, sometimes we can see the three characteristics, but then it starts to spin and we start to get sucked down into the vortex. And it can be, and this is for everyone at different times, as if, you know, we're back in the story and the me and the suffering and what did I do wrong? And it's just, can you relate at all? Or am I just, you know, talking to myself? No. So, um, So just some things about aspiration with that. The first thing to remind us 
when we're really like in this struggle and it, it seems to come down to me doing it wrong and what can I do to fix it, to remember that this path, this, this whole path is vast. Hold it in, in the, um, in the um, framework that Winnie was talking about last night of the Four Noble Truths. So when I'm spinning and, oh my God, I'm back in self-hatred again and if I really knew better, blah, 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 blah. Just to open up a minute and even if it's an intellectual reminder to remember whatever arises is held within the Four Noble Truths. There's not some experience you have that's somehow outside the Four Noble Truths and if you get rid of that, then maybe you can begin to discover what the Buddha was talking about, right? You heard Winnie on suffering last night. Everything can be slapped into that one. But to just widen out and see, it isn't just about me fixing this pattern of my mind and being less neurotic. Really here to understand the Four Noble Truths, that this is, this is dukkha. The cause of dukkha is tanha, craving. That there is a ending of craving, the sure heart's release, the ending of suffering, whether it's a momentary release from craving, which even Upandita talks about that as a moment of mindfulness, as a moment of freedom, or it's the complete ending of greed, hatred, confusion, which is the, the arha. But both of those are on the path. And then the, the, the eightfold path of our practice of how we live our life just to remind ourselves that even if it seems we're, we're struggling in a bubble of me and mine and what's wrong with me, that's just the particular expression of some aspect of the Four Noble Truths. So just to remember the vastness of what we're doing. So the path is vast, all-encompassing, and as the Buddha said, we are all invited. Ehi pasiko, you two come and see for yourself. It's not only for monastics. It's not only for people who have some kind of really special circumstances in their life. The truth is true for everyone. Everyone here has some kind of incredible deep aspiration or you wouldn't still be here. Whatever got you here, you wouldn't still be here into the fourth week. It's for everyone. So to remind ourselves that, that um, the potential for awakening is, that potential is available to each of us in any particular moment of our experience. And that's just not just some kind of a nice idea. That's really the essential, the heart of, I hope, why we practice. Don't shy away from that or let yourself fall into some um, Sakaya Ditti personality view of, okay, yeah, for somebody else, for me, if I could just get through the six weeks, you know, without committing some horrible thing, that'll be good, you know. Really let it in. This is what this path, this practice is about. And as the Buddha said, if it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. He didn't just say it's possible for this person over there. Ehi pasiko, you two come and see. Ajahn Buddha Dasa, who we've spoken about, and I, uh, there's one 
talk he gave that was translated into English. I just mention it very briefly because I love the title, which was Nibbana for Everyone. And this was a talk he was giving to Thai lay people, you know, quite some years ago, where um, he was saying in, in Thailand at that time, um, that Nibbana had come to be thought of as something that only was accessible in previous generations or only to, you know, monastics and stuff. But he was saying Nibbana means the heart-mind Nibbana means cool, basically. So he said in, in, a, in any moment that the mind stream, the heart stream, is freed from the torments of greed, hatred, confusion. It's cooled. That's the coolness, he says. He talks about momentary Nibbana, the same way that Sayadaw Pandita talked about a moment of mindfulness is a moment of freedom. But his whole talk, which I'm, I'm not going to go into more now, is really saying Nibbana is for everyone. We all experience many moments every day of this coolness of the heart and mind that's cooled. It's not burning with the fires of the torments. We need to notice this. He said, if, if you didn't have moments like that, you couldn't bear it. We couldn't survive. It's what keeps beings alive, he says. So this is, to me, both uh, very inspiring it can feed aspiration, but it's also, in a way, daunting. Or it's a, I don't know, challenge isn't the right word. But if you really, if I really let it in, that this is true and accessible and open to everyone, if I let that in, it can inspire in me a really deep aspiration and it doesn't allow me to fall back into personality views that is like almost afraid or somehow thinking I'm not worthy to really uh, honor, to really have such a deep or profound aspiration. You know, if we, don't really, if we don't really think we want it, then it's okay if we don't get it kind of thing. I'm not good enough, so why should I try? So let's not really look, if you know what I mean. So I want to talk about really taking the time Bonnie and Sally have both mentioned aspiration. I just want to talk about it a bit more to bring it home because I've been finding, oh, in some of these last years in, in, in my practice, that consciously tuning into this quality of aspiration, my own particular, in my own particular mind-heart stream, to consciously tune into it, to feel it, not just on an intellectual level, but to really tune into it, to allow it to inform our moment-to-moment decisions, to allow it to give us the courage, the energy to keep going, to keep showing up in the path. I've found this to be enormously supportive and something I didn't think about or do so much in the early years of my practice. So this sense of aspiration, I think when Sally talked about it a while ago, it's kind of like the, like the overview, large-scale intention, not just a moment-to-moment, the moment-to-moment chetana, but a more wider sense of what's really, truly, deeply most important to you in your life. To really um, 
take the time, you may know, you may not know, but to tune into that for yourself. And it's, it's not just a thought. The thought might, the, you may know when there's a thought, or maybe a thought of what you think ought to be, you know, your intention. But when you really tune into the aspiration, for me, it's a kind of a, a felt sense, kind of like a gut love. Oh, yeah, that's really what's most important to me in this life. It doesn't mean other things aren't also important, but this is kind of like the bottom level, bottom level thing, you could say. And in this sense of overarching aspiration, what really helps set us on a path, what we return to again and again, what keeps us on a path, but it's not something that's just a one-time thing. Okay, that's my aspiration. I'm, I'm here to awaken. That's it then we forget about it. Like we have to keep connecting with it moment by moment. It becomes hopefully a support, uh, a sense of strength, something to remind us in our moment to moment choices and decisions because every moment is changing. So first I'd say now, tonight, tomorrow, through this time, let yourself, when it comes up in your mind, in your heart, or you just have a sense, come some sense, yes, I, whatever it is, I'm, I'm not here to say what it should be for anybody, but say um, an intention is, I really want to awaken for the benefit of all beings. Okay, that's the, the bodhicitta, bodhisattva motivation. But say that comes up in your heart, in your mind. And then for, for many people, not everybody, but so many of us have this tendency of self-doubt, of putting oneself down or thinking I'm not worthy or I'm not able or someone else but not me. You, you know what I mean? That that, an intention that that's that profound could come up and the mind goes, you're right. Who do you think you are to be having such an aspiration, you know? First, you can't do it or you're just being whatever, whatever way your mind goes to kind of diss yourself. Don't listen to that. That's just aversive habit of mind. That's just falling into some view of Sakaya Ditti, of personality view. Don't listen to that. Really honor what comes up in your deep sense of what's most important to you in your life. And that can change, of course, as our life goes on, as our understanding and wisdom deepens, as our compassion grows, whatever, that can change, change form. But, but just for here on retreat, when you let yourself touch it, whatever stuff the mind says around it, don't pay attention to that. Really honor that intention. And that's all. You don't have to make a big, it's not an ego thing. It's different from, I'm so great, I have this intention. It's a, just an aspiration that comes. One way, the way I, for myself, can tell the difference from when aspiration turns to wanting. Because aspiration could be a sense of what is possible. So say the aspiration is really to free the heart and mind from the torments of greed, hatred, and confusion. That's a vast aspiration. It's also a sense of that's not how it is right now. It can be a sense of what's a potential, right? So that could certainly turn into a goal. And then I'm sure 
you remember us keeping on saying that the practice is about totally being here now, not goal-oriented. How does that work together? So when it's an aspiration, it's not like one eye on the goal, I'm here and how can I get there? It's a sense of, of, wow, it's a possibility. And it's a wholesome, beautiful quality. You can feel it. it. It brings a kind of a brightness in the mind, an uplift, a sense of energy, a willingness to do, you could say, sort of sada, faith, bringing virya, the willingness to do. And what do we do? We don't have one eye on the goal and say, what can I do to get there? What we do is completely open and surrender into this moment. Just this, this moment now is the path. So aspiration, you can feel it's supportive, it's energizing, it brightens and uplifts. When the mind, you know, when the habit of mind switches to wanting or greed, which it will because that's just its habit, it kind of switches. It's kind of then it's like one eye on the prize, so to speak. You know, okay, how am I doing? How am I doing? And instead of feeling this uplift, you can feel as with greed, as with wanting, the tendency of the, the mind heart starts to get more narrow more contracted, that can come in some sense of frustration or sense of expectation or sense of disappointment, all that stuff. So that's, oh yeah, not something wrong, but that can be really useful. Wow, I'm really feeling like frustrated. It's just not happening. Here's greed and I'm really here to get rid of greed. What's going on? Oh yeah, greed, that's what's going on. And then the, the aspiration can come back to give us the courage, oh, okay. Greed is like this, honestly. And in that moment, the frustration shifts. It's like a sense of, yes, I'm willing to show up for this. So it's a powerful force to keep coming back to, to keep finding ways to refresh, revitalize, and remind yourself. Because when we um, can really use this aspiration or sense of what's most important to us, maybe our, our deepest, strongest purpose in life, that's a reminder. It, it then can serve to uh, allow us to kind of collect and focus our energy through the vicissitudes of our life, through the different choices that we have to make. And you might find, I do, that we're we're able to do or be with or things that we never would have thought possible just from our little sense of self-personality. The sense of aspiration gives a great uh, courage and quality of resolution, determination. Aditana, which I think Sally also spoke about, which is a real mm, strength of intention where, where the energy of the mind-heart comes together. Just, just do it. Determination is really kind of like a, like the Nike thing. Just do it. In fact, Utejaniya used to hold up. He just would hold up the Nike swoosh, you know, and somebody was having trouble. He'd just hold it up and say, just do it. Just get up. Just feel your, what's happening. You know, just get simple. Just do it. Anyway, so to give an example, because one thing that helps me to keep refreshing or encouraging my aspiration is... Um, Sometimes wise reflection, tuning into beings that I know or that I've read about or that I see that 
that are somehow inspiring, that in a way that they are living their life or manifesting certain beautiful qualities, it can touch that same wholesome, beautiful quality in my own mind, my own heart, and rekindle kind of my being in touch with aspiration, with what's important. But so uh, just an example I wanted to give of, of determination of how the, the clarity of aspiration can lead to a real sense of determination that can take one through very difficult aspects of life. So this is um, from a biography, an autobiography I read of a, a great uh, Chinese Chan master who died just a few years ago. I know some of you knew him very well, Master Shen Yen. He's really, um, I only, I had the good fortune to sit with him only two short retreats, but I was enormously inspired by his being, by his wisdom, and also by his kindness, his relational quality, his simplicity of being. And he, he was a, a great uh, Chan master in, in Taiwan. He had, I don't know, tens of thousands of followers, which you didn't realize because I met him in the West and he just seemed so simple and accessible. And then, you know, you find out he's like huge, huge in, in Taiwan. So um, he wrote an autobiography called Footprints in the Snow. So just to, I'm, I'm just condensing a little bit of his uh, aspiration determination. So he became a monk early in life. He had a very difficult life of great privation and poverty. And he became a monk uh, in China, in mainland China. During, I don't know, I don't remember the exact year, the 20s, the 30s. And it was a very difficult life, but he was quite dedicated to being a monk through the World War and then through the Civil War. And then in 1949, when it was clear that, that Mao was winning the Civil War and that all the monasteries were going to be destroyed, that the only way he could get out of mainland China, he had no money, he had nothing, he was still a monk. He said, in my heart, I'm always going to be a monk. But the only way he could get out of mainland China was to join um, Chiang Kai-shek's army and then they would take him to Taiwan. So he did that. He did that to get out of mainland China. But once he got to Taiwan, you couldn't just say, okay, thanks. I think I'll, you know, withdraw from the army now. It's been, it's been nice. And, and so he said he was really basically stuck there in the army. He was disrobed. He said, but in my heart, in my mind, I'm always a monk. But he had to spend really years and years, over 10 years, in very difficult situation in the army there. And he said... Uh, he managed not to have to do any killing, but he had a very deep commitment to vegetarianism, for instance, but the food wasn't vegetarian. So this is his sense of determination, but also how to be flexible. So in his heart, I was always a monk. One of the monk's rules for him was to be a vegetarian. So mostly he'd eat vegetarian to the point of almost starving because that wasn't the food. But when it would come to the point where he's really gonna starve, he ate meat. I mean, he was like, really had this flexibility of what's the appropriate discerning wisdom, what's the appropriate action here, but still relating to, in my heart, I'm always a monk. 
And he felt, you know, if he felt that he had done um, actions that he felt remorse for, that weren't the sila that he really wanted to support, he would, in his own way, um, make amends. He, he did lots of prostration practice as a way of purifying his karma for him. And he said, so he said, finally, after a long time, he did manage to find a way out. And he said, looking back, I realized that if I did not have a very strong determination to actually return to monastic life, I probably would not have succeeded. Getting out of my particular branch of the military was nearly impossible. The kind of thing that you can't see from the beginning, we have aspiration, his aspiration to be a monk and to live that way, but we don't know what events are going to happen in our life or what's going to turn out, really. We don't know what will happen tomorrow. So the aspiration isn't about planning out how everything's going to look. We don't know. But it's really the beacon, the deep-seated root of what will be our guide, and then we have to find the flexibility and the discerning wisdom to move within the circumstances of our life, but always returning as best we can to our aspiration. And he said after he got out of the military, one of the first things he did was seven years of solitary retreat. (laughs) He's like, wow, finally. (laughs) But anyway, so he was elderly when I met him and really one of the more inspiring people that I've met. Um, So when I think about him, for example, it it brings... um, a sense of brightness to my mind, to my heart. It's like we, we don't always have to generate all the brightness, all the wisdom ourselves. Sometimes, you know, we're spinning in our stuff. We can't find it in ourselves. But then it's okay to, to bring to heart, to mind, somebody or something that can reignite, get you back in touch with some quality of wholesomeness, some quality of uplift that really feeds your aspiration. So when I think of Master Sheng Yin, I don't even, my mind doesn't list all these qualities, this, this, I just feel this brightness, this inspiration and a kind of a real metta that I felt from him and a real commitment, you know, of what is possible in a life. Just you leave it there. You don't have to go on to the next what is possible for him, but not for me because yada, yada, yada. No, just leave it there with the inspiration. And it's so helpful to keep doing this because as far as I said, we need to keep finding ways to support what I'm calling the courage, you know, the willingness to, okay, and this too again for the 10,000th time. Just now, how can I have the courage, the willingness to show up for this and recognize whatever's coming up now is part of the path? Just because it doesn't look like I think the path ought to look. Just because I feel like I'm spinning in my story and I'm not getting in neon lights, that's okay, honey, you're, you're understanding Anicca while you're going through this, you know? doesn't usually 
telegraph itself like that. You just feel like, ay, 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 again, you know? And then they come in to one of us and we say, yes, but you weren't feeling that yesterday. And you think, oh, shut up. I'm feeling it now. I'm going to feel it forever. Don't give me the thing. I didn't feel it yesterday. Yeah, it's really <laughs> happening now. <laughs> you go out of the room, you know? <laughs> so this is where <laughs> we really need to find our inspiration to keep going. At this point in a retreat, where you're, you're really working so sincerely, everybody, there's, there's, I think for all of us at different times, we're gonna have periods where I call it hitting the wall. We hit the wall in different ways. I'm not gonna even try to list them all. I'll just give a few examples. But where, for whatever reason, we think this is it. You know, it's kind of like, give me my walking papers, I'm gone. For, for whatever particular thing is going on. Sometimes, this is a, a big one, I'll just mention a few, is when, as I said, we've been, we've been seeing clearly and then our so-called painful, neurotic, bad habits come up again. The self-hatred or the spinning in fear or that memory again of what that person did in the third grade. I thought we went through this already 55 <laughs> times. And again, I have to feel it. I felt it. I know it. It's over, you know, <laughs> but it isn't over. Here it is. So then the only conclusion our little minds can come to is I'm no good. I can't do it. It's not working, right? Again with this. Because we're caught like in the cage of Sakaya Ditti at that point. We're taking it all personally. It's all about me working my way through it. And sometimes, you know, we know what it's like not to have that particular pattern happening. We felt the freedom, those moments of the coolness of no Kalesha. So when it comes back, I don't know if it's like this for you, but for me, it can be like a double whammy. Not only do I have to feel it all again, there's also the thought of, I'm more aware of how deluded I am feeling all of this. I'm actually feeling quite clearly how caught I am in this and how unable I am to get out of this. And so on top of all of that, we add the hopelessness of, oh my God, the more I practice, the more neurotic I get. And if it's like this now, just wait till I go home because I'm not even getting triggered much here. Wait till I have to go see my family. You know, that can't, you know, spiral, spiral, spiral. Okay, that's one way, <laughs> one way of hitting the wall. Sometimes, and this, for all of us, something opens up, an emotional pain, a trauma memory, physical pain, or that we haven't really quite felt before to that extent or open to before. It can be both scary, frightening, or just, just painful. Just that sense that this is just unbearable. There's no way I can be with this, the mind says. I can't bear this. Sometimes it's just afraid of how bad it's going to be. Sometimes it's just like shock, like no. If, if freedom means opening to this, never mind. You know, let me just shut, shut it down. But that's just a thought coming through. Comes through a lot, but it's just a thought coming through. Um, but this sense of, I can't bear it, another moment. I think of, maybe I said this another night, I can't remember, something I heard um, Ajahn Sumedho say one time, which comes in my mind a lot. I, it really helps me. He was talking about, I'm not sure, I think he was talking about when he was practicing in Thailand in the hot season 
and it's hot, hot in the hot season, and there's cootie with a tin roof, which I've experienced. You bake. Go in a little hut with a tin roof when it's 120 degrees outside and see how you feel. Hot, that's how you feel. And in, in all his robes, and he said, I'm sitting here sweating through my robes in the hot season of Thailand and the mosquitoes and this and your mind doing whatever it's doing. And you think, I cannot bear this one more second. Have you ever hit that place? He said, and then I'd find that I could. I love that. So I'll be sitting, oh, this is unbearable. I cannot be with this one more instant. Oh, yes, I can. (laughs) (laughs) It's just an instant, you know. Then I'll say to myself, what's actually, and this is a serious question. It's not putting myself down. What is it that's so unbearable about this moment right now? And when I ask that question, it it piques the interest again, like the mindfulness is again, what is actually happening right now? You know, it's not saying I should be able to bear it or not. It's just a shift of attitude in that moment. But what makes it possible? Remembering, just remembering our bigger aspiration from time to time. Another way we get really caught in like what I call the cage of Sakaya Ditti is again when our view of who we are or what should be happening on retreat. And I thought Winnie talked a lot about the the kind of background agendas we come into retreat with, and we're going to keep hitting them over and over. You know you're hitting one because you're frustrated that something isn't happening. That's always a great sign. Oh, I'm hitting up against some agenda, expectation. Great, let's see what it is. Bring it up into the light of day so it's not working in the background. But when change is occurring, and we're taking it personally, and we all do this. There's a great sutta I like from the Buddha, this monk, a monk named Asaji, who had been a very good monk. He was practicing a lot, and he came to the Buddha, and he was very, he, this is from the sutta, he was sick, afflicted, gravely ill. I think actually he was dying. And, the, and he was telling the Buddha that he was filled with remorse and Uh, the Buddha said to him, but if you have nothing for which to reproach yourself in regard to virtue, Asaji, why are you troubled by remorse and regret? And Asaji says, formerly, venerable sir, when I was ill, I was able to tranquilize the bodily formations. In other words, he could really cultivate concentration and get calm. But now I do not obtain concentration. And so it occurs to me, let me not fall away. So he's not being able to concentrate his mind and he's freaking out. Let me not fall away. He's like, basically, don't let me fall away from the path. I can't get concentrated. Sound familiar? And the Buddha said, (laughs) um, it was a whole long discourse. I'm going to spare you the whole discourse. First he gave, he talked about impermanence, right? About the permanence of the body. Bodily formations change, and so the conditions change, the results change. He talks about impermanence of Vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. When the conditions for the pleasant change, it changes. And then he said also, remember in the fact that in my teaching, concentration is not the essence 
People who think concentration, this is the Buddha, people who think concentration is the essence of the teaching, when the concentration can't arise, they think they've fallen away from the path. But concentration is not the essence of my teaching. The essence is insight, the path, awakening. And so he's saying to Asaji, yeah, the conditions are changing. You're really sick. You can't cultivate concentration now. That's how it is. But that's not a falling away from the path. So this is not in the sutta. Everything's the path. Seeing concentration can't arise. Seeing the causes and conditions have changed. Seeing the impermanence, seeing the impersonality of that. That's the Four Noble Truths right there. And the freedom in the moment, oh, it's like this. Of course I can't, I'm dying for God's sake. I can't concentrate. That's a moment of freedom that the bubble burst, the clinging, the sense of self trying to do something burst. And of course, Asaji became one of the arhats. So just to know, it's not just us kind of spinning around in this. The same at the time of the Buddha, the same with nuns and monks who'd been his disciples and followers for many years. We can get caught in this little bubble of it's all about me and me doing and falling away instead of seeing the big picture. Whatever's occurring, we see it through the lens of the Four Noble Truths. There's the potential in that moment for a moment of awakening, a moment of freedom, a moment of coolness, whatever it is that's happening. And it doesn't mean in the next moment the conditions change and we're back spinning again, not to take it personally. Two other quick ways we sometimes get caught. One is something Sayadu Pandita used to call stopping within, which is basically, it's going really nice. Things are flowing, either you're really focused, it's smooth, everything's happening, it's effortless, it's just going. We don't have to put in effort and you don't need to put in effort. And it kind of, something in the back of the mind kind of goes, that's good enough. Um, I could live with this. You know, it's, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little, it's kind of subtle, but there's some way we go, yeah, okay, that's good. It's better than I ever thought it could be. I'll take it. You know, but it's kind of like a something puts down, okay, that's enough now. And he calls that, that stopping within, you know, and kind of like a little bit, the energy over time can start to decay or the interest isn't quite so strong. Of course, it'll change. We know that. But just to be aware, we've kind of said, great, good enough. I'm on cruise control for a while. And another thing is, another way that I see a lot is, Actually, a lot of insight could be happening, really getting deeper sense of anatta, you know, of the out of control. Quite a lot of people are experiencing things where you're really feeling the out of control nature of things. But often that's accompanied not with great, not self is occurring out of control. I'm so free. I'm so happy. It's like, all the defense systems, the self-personality stuff kicks in about trying desperately to control, you know? And so it's this real sense of struggle or, or some idea of impermanence, I'm just making this up, comes in and the mind goes, if that's what freedom's about, I don't want anything to do with it. 
What about, you know, they think, what about if there's no self? What about loving my family? You know, if there's no clinging, how do I care for my children? If, the, you know, all the stuff that the mind kind of makes up about the future, it's not actual experience, but a fear of what it might be. And it's almost like, uh, we want to go back to the pleasure garden, you know? The way when, when, when he was talking about the Buddha's life, you know, maybe there were times when he was out there in those six years eating one grain of rice every two weeks, where maybe he thought about, you know, it could be nice back there with those lotus ponds. What am I doing here? And it's like, <laughs> this is what it's about. Let me go back. I'm not ready to give this up yet. Um, Trungpa, Chogim Trungpa, call that a nostalgia for samsara. Yeah, I love that. We know we're suffering. You know, no, I just want it back. Uh, it, this doesn't quite make sense, but in, in over my years of practice, there have been several, several times in long retreats where I can't even say what it was, but as if some, some felt like a series of small deaths of certain, not aspects of my personality, we wish, but um, more like views that I was believing about my personality, who I was or something. And it would just start to melt away or be seen through. And even though it was liberating, there could be this sense of a kind of a, of, of a nostalgia for something going away that was familiar, that's comfortable, like, you know, like the, in that Peanuts comic from when I was a kid, you know, with Linus with his old blanket, you know, your old cozy, smelly, holy blanket, but it makes me feel good, you know, so you slip into it. So kind of a nostalgia for that sense of whatever it is, a certain sense of self, even though in the going away, in the seeing through it, really, seeing it was never real to begin with, there's quite a freedom. I, I, I find that interesting, that nostalgia for samsara. So just some examples, but I'm saying those as not that there's something wrong when any of these are happening, but to remind us that the path is lifelong and all-inclusive. And a lot of the time, we don't realize the, the understandings that are coming. It's not all in thought, you know? So uh, in retreat, there's times when emotions are coming and going and changing rapidly and they're all really intense and you kind of believe them all and it's exhausting. And we'll say, oh, so things are changing. And it doesn't feel like you're getting that insight. It just feels like you're getting thrown all over the place, right? But on another level, on a deeper level, the perception is shifting. Perception is starting to get clearer to see things more the way they are. It doesn't always make it up into the thought world the way we want it to. So these are extremely valuable and important aspects of our path, in retreat, out of retreat. Remember, Nibbana is for everyone. And as far as I can tell, except for incredibly rare exceptions, it's, it's very challenging. It's demanding for everyone. In some, not in some ways, I would say, freedom from clinging, the heart-mind that's free from clinging, it's absolutely uncompromising. It's not free from clinging except for anything. Freedom from clinging is just really freedom from all clinging. So, and with our most 
sincere intention and everything we read and us yakking up here all the time and 10 million instructions, the mind of thinking of what we know can't imagine what that uncompromising, what that radical freedom of heart-mind is like. Whatever we can imagine is limited by what we know and what the imagining is. It's impossible. But, you know, we want to know ahead of time. We want to kind of aim in the direction of what we think it should feel like. And then when, when this other stuff comes up, that sure isn't what we think it should feel like. And so we get caught again in our expectations or in trying to, you know, very sincerely take all of the instructions and figure out which is the best one to apply right now to get to freedom from clinging or feeling better or whatever it is. But we're all caught up in really what, what's required of us, the full commitment, the courage, isn't to fix it or figure it out. In those moments when we see we can't possibly know, it's the, the commitment, the courage to just in this moment, just open, surrender. It's like this now, totally open into this moment as it is. Not for anything but because this is all there is, this moment. Like Dogen said, you know, if you can't find the truth right where you are, where do you expect to find it? Right here, this moment. And so to do this again and again, that's what we're all doing here, you know, again and again. We get lost in our stories and trying and figuring out and applying things and then For me, I need to call on my aspiration at this point when I can see I'm confused, I'm trying to figure, okay, really connect with opening to truth for the benefit of all beings, just drop into the moment. And the next moment arises as it does. It's a really kind of a radical trust in the path of awakening and it takes its own path and wends its own way for each of us. Each of us has a different path. It shows up differently. That's why comparing is so completely makes no sense. That's not going to stop us, as you know. Bonnie was talking about mana. We'll keep it up, you know, until the last possible moment. By God, I'm going to compare, compare until I die. But it makes no sense because everybody's path, everybody's conditioning is slightly different. And we all have to go through what we have to go through. So it's like to find the courage to open into this vulnerability, into this kind of love and trust of the mystery of now. For me, it really, more and more and more over the years, is a sense of reconnecting with my aspiration. That brightness of heart, mind, energy that just gives me the courage to show up again. And so I just want to encourage you to find ways for yourself. And again, we're all different. What helps you reconnect with that for yourself? Um, For me, one way is remembering, as I said, just remembering inspiring beings. One way is just when I see that I'm in my story, to widen it out and see that this particular moment of suffering, it's not just my moment, it's an expression of the human condition. Whatever particular suffering any of us are in, 
You know, we're brothers and sisters in that with so many people in this particular moment of life. Open it beyond the personal. The personal as an expression of all of us, humanity, not separate. That gives me a, a, a strength to kind of be with it more. Also, I find when I'm just being with myself on retreat, sitting, walking, going through something, as I'm not really thinking of my aspiration or the real sense of practicing to awaken, but also to be of benefit to beings. So I'm just doing my thing, practicing something's hard, and, and I'm with it for a while, and I think, okay, that's enough. I, I can get up now and go do whatever. And then it comes in my mind, you know what? Just be with this. It's not just for you, but maybe if you're just really with it, it's for the, you might be able to be of benefit to somebody. There's a whole other kind of strength of courage that can, okay, right, let me sit down and be with this again. And it's not like a should at all. It's this really kind of uplifting energy of, right, let's really understand that. It's a kind of a compassion, a kind of a love, a metta. And again, it's in seeing that the attitude with which our mind-heart meets any particular experience is also really, really helpful. Sony Rinpoche says, if you cultivate the correct motivation within your own experience, it turns into bodhicitta all by itself. So the way I, when my little way of thinking of that is how does the mind-heart meet this present moment of your experience? So if you, in non-aggression, in the mind-heart's relationship to a moment of our own personal suffering is the expression of the intention of compassion. So just playing with that, as difficult as this moment is, just kind of just surrender into it just for an instant with non-aggression. You don't have to love it. We don't love the things that are difficult. You don't have to like it. But as Ajahn Sumedho says, he calls metta just being with what's difficult without creating anything around it. That to me seems more possible. I'm not going to love my knee pain. I can just be with it without creating anything around it. Non-aggression, just meeting this painful experience, this sense of self-hatred, this self-blame, this fear, just like this now, it's just like this now. That's, that's manifesting the intention of compassion and it strengthens the more we do it. So as I said earlier, one of the things that I do to help me reconnect with aspiration when I'm not finding it in myself is to use wise reflection. This is a way sometimes we can use it in different ways. One is to consciously think of beings I've known who inspire me, like Master Shenyan. But it doesn't have to be some amazing master either. It can be just someone you know who manifests great uh, generosity at times, or courage, or compassion, you know, and, and that thinking of that person really lights up that energy in my own heart and mind. Or if you're a devotional type, as Bonnie was describing the other night, then sometimes thinking of a sense of the lineage of whoever your teachers have been, of their practices, whatever it is going back, just holding in mind that, that can sometimes really brighten the heart-mind. I spend a lot of time in Burma 
uh, a lot of time with, with different nuns, lots of different nunneries, poor nunneries. So these are mostly, um, you know, village women, you could say kind of like a simple life, a poor life. But one of, and they're dedicated to, uh, to living a, a virtuous life, but also um, very generous. Many of the nuns take care of young kids, but they all have a very, um, well, not all. I mean, there's good nuns and bad nuns and good monks and bad monks, you know, just like everything. But the sincere nuns, and there's a lot of them, have very devotional nature. For many of them, Buddha Nupassana, or reflecting on the qualities of the Buddha, is a very profound practice for them. Now, for me, I, I'm not that type. That doesn't. That particular practice doesn't inspire me. A guy talked about it the first night. It really inspires him. We're all different. But I can be with those nuns and see how inspired they get from that. And that inspiration, that love and devotion lights up that in my own heart. And I can appreciate that energy. And it touches a kind of devotion to the truth, which is the way it manifests for me, you know. So it doesn't have to be that it's exactly your way, but letting in the different beautiful uplifting qualities that we see in people is a profound way I find to touch into uh, aspiration to remind yourself. So I'll just tell a little story again of another nun that inspired me. She, um, Sumanachari. So we knew her for several years. There's a group of us that go every year and just friends donate some money and we offer it to these nuns. So she had a, uh, kind of the head nun in a smallish nunnery, about 25 nuns, again poor. When we first met her, like so many of the nunneries, no electricity, not decent clean water, just a tiny little building. So the building had gotten bigger, and she'd been there a few years. And she came by one, one day, because she knew that we had sometimes, I mean, we would offer money anyway, but she, every year. But she came at the end of our time, and very earnest and sincere. And we'd always thought of her as just a little depressive, a little pulled in, just going along. And she came and our friend Aria can speak fluent Burmese so we could get good, good communication. So she was saying that she hadn't been able to be at ease in her heart and mind all year because she saw that many of the poor kids in, the, in that area, and there's many, many, both nuns and little kids, they walked far away to another school, started by another nun, like 45 minute walk. But in the rainy season, that was too hard for the really little kids. So she had this deep wish or need to start a school for these really small kids, which meant, you know, she had nothing, but she just asked if we could donate some money just to start it. So we, we didn't really, you know, think she could do it. But we thought, well, we could give $3,000. We could do that. So we did that. Come back the next year. And it's like, it's amazing. This, I've seen this so many times now. It's amazing. With that, all of the nuns had all moved into one little house. They'd given up all their space. She'd used that money to build kind of lean-tos, just like a roof, a roof and a lot of desks and open air. And she had 150 little students by then. Now that means she has to hire the teachers regular teachers at regular salary, which is all donated money. These are nuns, they live on total donation, you know. She's not the only one who's done that. There's lots of nun schools who do that. But she had pulled this together in the year 
And she came back and she was bright. Her face was radiant. She was exhausted. <laughs> and she said, you know, every, and then she's been more exhausted every year since. But she said, I'm so happy. My chitta, my heart and mind is at peace. I'm able to just give all that I can to take care of these young kids. It just makes me so happy. So when I think of her, Sumanachari, she's really like an ordinary person, but manifested this great love and devotion and generosity and year by year by year. I know many like that, but just, so just to think of people you know that can do it and see how it lights up your heart and mind and say, okay, let me come back. Let me be with this moment of back pain for the benefit of all beings and mean it. Just let me just surrender right now. So just coming back to your aspiration, sometimes you'll feel it deeply, sometimes it seems superficial, but keep it up. It sinks in, it gets deeper, it starts to spread out, and it really, you'll see how it, it gives us the courage and the determination and the resolution to keep showing up, even when we don't understand, we don't see the path before us. We really have to trust that what's occurring now is what it is. So I just want to end from the Buddha. Two things from the Buddha. Two things I never lost sight of. Not to shrink from the struggle and not to rest contented merely with wholesome states of mind. Really, he says, it is this unshakable deliverance of heart, of mind, that is the goal of this holy life. Its essence, its heartwood, and its end. Don't settle, don't settle for anything less. Thank you for your kind attention. May our sincere practice together today and these six weeks or three months be a cause, a condition for our own awakening from confusion and may the merit be shared with all beings everywhere that all beings may be freed from suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.